giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, December 21st. I am Ben Orenstein, and today I'm here with David Heinemeyer Hansen. Hi, David. Hey. How's it going? I am good. How are you guys? Uh, doing really well. So, David, I want to start with something really serious. Uh, a good friend of mine swears that there are more beautiful women in Copenhagen than any other city in the world. Can you confirm that? Uh, that's a, a pretty good bet. I'd say uh, any of the major Scandinavian cities. I don't know whether Stockholm, Oslo, or um, Reykjavik. Um, I'm sure they'll all contend that, that they'd take the crown, but... Uh, Sure, there are lots of uh, beautiful women in uh, Copenhagen. Uh huh. Is your wife Danish? Uh, she's not. She's actually American, but uh, of Scandinavian descent. Oh, okay, so so you kind of had to say that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so David, I'm curious. Can you maybe walk us through what a normal day looks like for you? Just an average working at going to work kind of day for us. Sure. It kind of depends where I am at the moment. Um, I, I kind of spend time in a few different places. Mm-hmm. When I'm in um, Chicago, um, I usually get up about what some eight thirty or so, and and I like to to work from from bed from the first few hours, which is usually just checking email, reading up on uh, news sites and interesting articles, Twitter and so forth, and uh, and then it really just depends on on what's in the docket because. Uh, Together with Jason, obviously, uh, we run 37 signals. Mm-hmm. And, and some days that means we can work on programming and design and new features or new products. And other times it means that we just have to take care of the mechanics of, of running the company. So there's not really a, sort of a set schedule for that, mm. uh, for what the work itself is. Um, we both really enjoy the work itself. I, I kind of consider the, just the mechanics of running a business not really the work it's it's certainly not what i'm in doing this for mm-hmm. uh, i'm interested in making cool products and, and cool features so for me that's that's all about programming and and making the right choices there and, and for jason it's all about design mm-hmm. um what percentage so that's, your, what percentage of your time are you spending coding these days it really depends i mean when we were making the new version of Basecam, which we released uh was that Nine months ago or so, um, I was programming maybe 90% of the time. Mm. Uh, and now that we've released that and, and we're sort of back into a more sedate cycle of things, maybe I'm programming, I don't know, 30 to 50% of the time. Mm. And you mentioned uh, Jason. What, what is your relationship with him like? like? How do you two sort of balance each other as you're running the company? Sure. I, I think it really helps that we have two distinct areas of expertise. Um, I handle things on the programming end and he handles things on the design end. And mm-hmm. then we share the responsibility of, of running the company itself. Um, so we sort of, he has design, I have programming. And then we just have a shared understanding of the world basically, mm. uh, of what's important, what's not important, and uh, what's good and what's not good. I'd say we have very similar taste in many ways when it comes to products, especially web products. And uh, that just sort of helps guide the vision of the company without having a whole lot of entanglements of where we should go, even though, I mean, we have that too. It's certainly not because we always agree we often disagree and, mm. and loudly so yeah. but uh 
at the end of the day, we care about the same things. Hmm. So I noticed uh, as I was uh, researching you a little bit that the blog uh, Signal versus Noise is now 13 years old. Yep, it was started when the company was started back in 1999. Uh, I started actually, uh, I learned about 37 signals through the blog. Uh, I was reading the blog back in 99, 2000, and then started working with Jason in 2001. um, And and basically been involved with the company uh, ever since. But uh, for the first couple of years, 37 signals life, I was just a fan, basically, Mm -hmm. of... uh, the web design consulting company that it was at the time. Hmm. So pretty good ROI on the blog then if if you discovered the company through it. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it, not just that, um, lots of people we've come to work with or, or works for us now learned of the company and Jason and I through the blog. So I think the blog is absolutely instrumental to where we are today, who we work with, the kind of products that we do, and the audience and customer base we've been able to attract. Hmm. So what do most people uh, who sort of internet know you not actually know about the real you? Um, that's a good question, because I actually tend to share a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I share more than I think most people are comfortably comfortable sharing even, yeah your, your twitter feed is a pretty comes, is a pretty passionate place yeah exactly mm-hmm. um I, I share my opinions whether they're about business or, or personal or political or whatever else have you and mm-hmm. I, I share pictures of my life and so forth so i don't know if there's really any big areas that are that are sort of unknown maybe i i mean i tend to care about the the future more than the past. So I don't talk too much about what, uh, what I did before to, to come where, where I am now. So one fact toyed perhaps is that, uh, I used to, or I got into programming from, um, uh, being into gaming journalism. Hmm. Uh, I really love games and I used to love them even more console game, computer games and so forth. So I was writing reviews and all that stuff. And, uh, I was trying to get all that stuff published. And this was back in the, what mid nineties and, and the web just seemed to be the perfect place to do that. So, uh, somewhere along the way, I, I taught myself how to do HTML and so forth. And that led to programming just to get all the stuff that I had published and, and get a community going. So I don't know, maybe some people didn't know that. Huh? So you basically, you wanted a CMS back in the day. And so you, you started, started it yourself. It, yep, exactly. A CMS, uh, a form software comments, all that stuff. Um, uh, I mean, over the past, what, 15, 20 years, I must have implemented uh, the first uh, 500 common systems. <laughs> Us too. We, we, we redo that a lot. So um, where, where do you draw your inspiration from these days? Like, who, who inspires you? Um, well, I, the internet inspires me, I'd say. Um, it, it's, I mean, coming up, uh, getting into programming, there were certainly a lot of clear influences from Martin Fowler to Kent Beck to Dave Thomas, uh, lots of people, Eric Evans, uh, who wrote books that I was really into um, uh, reading and and getting a lot of uh, sort of my initial impressions of what programming is and defining the taste that I I picked up for what programming should be. Mm. What were Um, were those books that you liked? um, Domain-driven development, uh, enterprise application architecture, refactoring, 
extreme programming, mm. uh, small talk, best practices. Uh, let's see, that that's a good take of some of them. And even, I mean, before that, to uh, Steve McConnell, uh, mm-hmm. Code Complete, yep. and, and that line of uh, books, even though the technical parts of them perhaps aren't as relevant, there's tons of uh, really good stuff there in, in there nonetheless. Uh, but these days, it's actually, it's been a long time since I've truly read a new programming book to, to learn something new, to stay up to date, because mm-hmm. I find that uh, just that production cycle is is so slow mm. that if it's about something specific of technology specifically um I, I prefer just picking that up through blog posts and uh, example code and so forth um versus perhaps sort of yeah i don't know i mean in some ways maybe i, I feel like i have a, a good sense of just the philosophical underpinnings which is is what I think something like a, a book is great as, at summarizing when you're still establishing your your belief and your value system, uh, getting a, a whole coherent world like uh, extreme programming, for example, as as Ken Beck and Ward Cunningham uh, presented it was was extremely influential. Hmm. Um, and then later, when when you're looking more at sort of just refinements or technique improvements or so forth. Uh, I find the more bite-sized approach to be uh, preferable. So these days I do get pretty much everything uh, that is to do about learning new stuff about programming off blog posts, Twitters, GitHub repositories and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so kind of going back to the the particular people that inspire you, do you have anyone now that you sort of look up to and think, wow, I want to be like that guy or I want to do some of the things he's done? I do. I think it's a, Great pattern, actually, for getting better. Mm. Identify people who you think do great stuff uh, or have a great style or whatever, and then try to to emulate them. These days, it's not so much in programming, but um, other hobbies that I'm interested in, whether it's uh, racing or, or photography or, or something else like that. I I always start when I'm learning something new by trying to emulate the people that I've identified as uh as being great in the business or the hobby or whatever it is. Hmm. So, so racing is, is relatively new to you, right? You didn't have experience yeah, uh, with this? Yeah, I, I started, uh, right, I, I didn't even get my driver's license until I was 25. I lived in Copenhagen. Having a car is extremely expensive and, uh, uh, frankly, unnecessary to uh, deal with city life of Copenhagen. But as soon as I moved to um, Chicago, uh, that was certainly not true. So uh, I got my driver's license at 25. I started uh, racing just to sort of uh, a little bit in, on a hobby basis about five years ago. And then I sort of got serious about it, what, uh, two years ago. Hmm. It's it's so interesting. I love picking up new hobbies because you have this great uh, learning curve in the beginning where like every time you try it, you're noticeably better than last time. I imagine Absolutely. Uh, that's your experience in the same thing. You know, you go from programming where you, it takes a lot of work to make even a little bit of additional progress to something where you're so new at it that you can just learn at such a, a different rate. That's really satisfying to have as a hobby. Absolutely. That's, that's why I like just picking up new things because that rate of improvement in the beginning is, is so um, steep. And I, I find that just that whole process is, is very flow inducing. Uh, mm. When you get rapid feedback on your, on your progress, it's a, 
very positive feedback loop. Uh, with racing, it's uh, one of the most uh, immediate feedback loops that I know of. Uh, you race around a circuit and then you get a time. And that time is, let's say, 55 seconds. Like somebody else goes out in the same car and does the same thing and, and they do it in 52 seconds. It's very clear, like your skill gap is right there. It's called three seconds. Right. And you can see constantly, oh, I took that corner a little better. I did that a little more. Oh, I got another half second and so forth. It's very gratifying to have that sort of immediate feedback on on your improvements. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you can't you can't program for a day and then sit down and be like, oh, I got a 75 out of 78 today. No, no, you can't. And I think that that's why... Perhaps sometimes it's easy to, to give up. Uh, it's easy to not really know where you are. And I think that that's why actually open source is so important. And I think open source software has been responsible for making programmers so much better, so much faster, exactly because it does provide some sort of feedback mm. loop. Uh, if you're just programming by yourself internally in a company, you don't really see anybody else's code except for the few programmers who were also employed by that company, you don't really have any barometer to compare yourself against anything. Right. Versus if you release open source code, you'll know very quickly whether what you do is, is shit or hit. Right. Uh, you just you throw it up in GitHub, you release a gem. Are people interested? Are they downloading it? Uh, what are the sort of suggestions you get back? What's the feedback loop? Um, open source is really the closest I've come to to having that lap timer in terms of uh feedback yeah and it's interesting it, it's i think for such a long time we learned trades and skills as sort of like apprenticing under someone and so you have a chance to get feedback from a more experienced person all the time as you're learning something but programming is kind of a newer phenomenon where you can actually and it's common to teach it to yourself and so you can potentially sort of grow up and learn in this vacuum without someone giving you feedback yeah and i think that that's uh uh, it's it's that's not a good thing. Right. I mean, well, I think that I think uh, it is and it isn't. Fe- well, well, it, it's good that you can learn it on your own. What's not good is you don't know whether you're you're good or not. Right. Because I, I, what I've at least found is when when people are trapped inside very local feedback loops, they can convince themselves that they're much better than they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes with, with programming, it goes with racing, it goes with all sorts of things. If you just de- define your your peers narrowly enough, you could be the best at anything. <laughs> right. um, versus with, say, racing, I mean, um, the only thing I'm interested in comparing myself against is the best in the world. Like, I'm not interested in saying, oh, well, I'm one of the three best racers in southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. I mean, what the f- who the hell cares about that? Um, what's so interesting to me about uh, these public global arenas like racing, like open source software, like photography, um, is that uh, you, you're competing against the world. Mm. Uh, that to me is, is a very inspiring challenge. And I think it's, it's a very, uh, it puts your um, sort of progress uh, on a fast track. Because uh, if you look back through history on, on sporting events, for example, right? Uh, I remember this story about, I think, in the 1920s or 30s or whatever. You, they ran the Olympics 
I don't know if it was like the 800 meters in a certain time, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody had break, broken the, the two minutes. I, I don't know if these numbers even make sense. But the point was that like there was this bar that everybody thought, well, it's not possible to go faster than two minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Then one guy goes faster than two minutes and everybody's like, holy shit, the human body can do that. And then the very next year, like 10 more guys do it. So a lot of these things in terms of creating progress is a lot about just knowing where are those physical barriers Hmm. like it's it's very easy if you take racing for example you go to a local track and like the fastest guy at the track will will do a lap time in in say again 55 seconds right so you think that's the limit and then somebody from out of town shows up and and they do the same thing and they do 52 seconds and you're like holy i thought we were the best we could be i thought we were at the the peak um i find exactly the same thing to be true in programming Hmm. there's a lot of code and previous environments and so on where i'm sure people thought wow we're really at the pinnacle um when i looked at uh, sort of one of the major influences on me was uh the java world anno 2003 mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um there was a lot of frameworks there was a lot of clever thinkers there was a lot of uh practices that were promoted as like we're really at the pinnacle here. We're at the peak of doing something great and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and I looked at that, certainly lots of other people looked at that too and thought, really, is that, is that this is the peak of the human programming potential? Mm-hmm. This, this doesn't sound right, right? Yeah. And then we, we had these uh, releases of software that showed just how much simpler the world could be, right? Mm. Like we ran in under two minutes and all of a sudden people were like, what the f- Who's going to put up with this embarrassing mess of XML configurations and so forth that we've deluded ourselves into thinking that this is a good way of building software? Yeah. So it sort of moved the goalposts and and by that moved the industry forward. Mm. Um, so let me turn that around on you a little bit. So So one day someone is going to look at the Rails world and think the same thing, right? Absolutely. I hope so. Mm-hmm. In fact, I am... I'm surprised that it hasn't happened to a greater extent mm. because I care about progress. So I, have, I look at all new stuff and, and then I compare it to the stuff that we have today. And then I try to measure where is the, the true progress and, and where are things, interesting things happening. And I'm actually a little surprised that we haven't moved farther, further, faster. Hmm. Um, and I think maybe some of it is just... Uh, you can tap a certain area, say web apps. Like if you're going to build web apps with HTML, CSS, and, and JavaScript, um, in some ways, like that's a constrained field. We're constantly moving those goalposts, but it's, it's happening in a in a little bit of a slower pace. I find. Um, I, I'm really curious. Like, what is that next big breakthrough going to be? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've looked at the two things that I, I feel like uh, really put something new to it, or at least popularized uh, a new approach with Sinatra and uh, Node.js. Mm. Um, I thought like both of those, wow, there's some, there's some really clever, cool ideas here. doesn't necessarily mean, or it didn't mean, and doesn't mean that either of those two environments were like, oh, shit, like now Rails doesn't make sense for any of this stuff that I'm doing anymore. Let me redo it um, and something else, but there were other use cases and there were other areas where like, Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. If I was going to make something X, 
then uh, I would use one of those two things. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So if you could uh, have a clean slate and kind of start Rails over again for the the stuff you wanted to build today, would you make different design decisions? Um, No, not really. Actually, I I find that the trying to revise like what you could have should have would have done is is not that productive like everything is a is a path to where you are today and and in fact when i look at rails 4 as we have it um it has more in common with rails 0.5 than than it than it doesn't have in common right Hmm. the spirit of using it the style and the things that the framework cares about have actually been incredibly stable. So everything's gotten better, um, but it's sort of the uh, it's the small details at the margin, right? Uh-huh. Like going from being 99.5 to 99.6 takes an immense amount of effort. Mm. Uh, in many ways, much more effort than it takes than going from zero to 80, right? right? You right. can capture that initial eighty percent of the of the value of an idea and an approach in in uh, vanishingly small amount of effort compared to what those margin optimizations at the end cost you. Right. Hmm. So you say on your site that you, you want to have a you foresee a prosperous run of Rails for for twenty plus years. So do you hope to still be merging pull requests in in twenty thirty or so? If if what we're doing is still web apps, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Rails continues to, for me, uh, evolve with the new ideas that come up when it comes to web apps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, the web, to me, is the greatest computer platform that's ever been. Mm-hmm. And I, I see it having a very prosperous future. Um, simply because most of the alternatives that are being promoted uh, just don't have those unique characteristics of the web in the sense of the openness. It's not owned by anybody. You can mm. build with whatever you want, and it's a level playing field, unlike all these walled gardens that are ever so popular in iOS or, or whatever. I, I just don't see them having the staying power of, uh, of the web. I think that uh, the web will be around long after we've forgotten what iOS is. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting to say, you know, you, the, the run of Rails could be 20 plus years. If you, if you flip that around and go backwards 20 years, that's, you're predating the web at that point. So it, it could be that, right. you know, we're not even doing web apps 20 years ago. It's more of a comparison to, to the last 10 years, right? So Rails is coming up on, on its 10-year anniversary mm-hmm. in, in not too long. Actually, next year will be 10 years since I started working on Rails. Mm. And, and I look at that and think, oh, yeah, I mean, we've made things a lot better, and they've changed a lot. But the more things we've changed, the more things I've seen have stayed the same. Like the fundamental value proposition of, programming for the web is as strong today if not stronger than it was 10 years ago um so i'm like i'm looking at it right now and thinking like what is it that's going to take over in the next 10 years mm-hmm. i'm not seeing it i mean yeah. obviously that is the sort of the if i was seeing it we'd already be doing it so people always it's funny to talk about like oh what do you think the next big thing is dude if i knew what the next big thing <laughs> is i would be doing it like the whole right. The, the concept of the next big thing is that you don't know what it is. Otherwise, it would already be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And somebody would be selling it to you. Yeah, totally. Hmm. So 
you're a guy who's accomplished a lot of things. And one thing I've noticed about myself is as soon as I've accomplished something, some goal that used to feel sort of high and lofty seems I kind of discounted as soon as I've actually achieved it. And I'm always focusing on sort of the next thing. So does that happen to you as well? Oh, absolutely. Within a second. <laughs> I, I wrote up a post uh, about the whole thing in racing, right? Where I started being like, oh, it'd be great if I could just like run at a decent pace mid-pack in a gentleman's series somewhere. And like, as soon as that happened, you're like, what? That's nothing. Right. Like, All right. I want to be in top five. And then you're in top five. And you're like, who wants to be in top five? Like, let me get to, let me win this thing. And then you're like, well, who wants to win just among gentlemen? Let's go up against the professionals. Let's, let's do all these things. And uh, it happens with everything. And it happens with, with racing. It happens with rails. And I think it happens with anybody who's addicted to progress and improvement, which thankfully is a lot of people. Mm. I think that's how we push the human race forward. If, if we were all just happy to rest on our laurels, not a whole lot of shit would change. Yeah, uh, but, or would but, but I guess if, if, if you and I both don't feel satisfaction when we really achieve those goals, I guess, do we need to have a, a bit of a mindset shift? Well, I think there are two things to it. So I think that there's first that you should absolutely celebrate victories. Mm. You should celebrate small victories and big victories. You should sh- celebrate progress and improvement. And I really try to do that. I try to often look back and think, wow, that was really cool. I, I made that happen or I accomplished that or so forth. And then as soon as you've sort of patted yourself on the back, I, I think the best thing possible is to, to look forward and say, all right, what, what's the next thing I can do? I think that happiness is absolutely derived from forward motion. Like, mm. There's not a whole lot of people who are happy just sitting still. So do you have any, uh, do you have any irrational fears? Um, I don't think I do. I think that that's because I'm, I'm fundamentally not that afraid of a whole lot of things. Like I, I try to imagine all those worst case scenarios and think, uh, what would happen to me if that happened? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, just a few examples, like say I couldn't race anymore. Like, Hey, okay. At least I got a good run. I, I got a chance to running at the 24 hours of Le Mans, which has been a, a dream of mine for a long time. I mean, I, I could be happy with that. I could go back to, to playing video games. Like, that would not be the end of the world. I have a ton of fun playing video games. So if I could not race anymore, okay. And then I think of um, sort of uh, what would happen if, if um, like 37 Seagulls went bust and, and we lost all the uh, financial accomplishments that we've had out of that. And I was like, well, so what? I mean, I, one of the things I enjoy most in the world is just sit in front of a computer and program. I, I can do that regardless of whether I'm running a software company or, 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 or what. I mean, that's what I did. Like, that's how, how I sort of came to run a software company was just by, by writing software and, and, and getting better at things. So to me, it's really important to constantly look at, uh, at those things and think, do you know what? If all the glitz and the glamour went away tomorrow, that doesn't define me. Like that's not who I am, and and I could be, be doing just as well if 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 all that wasn't wasn't there. Mm. Um, because I think otherwise, once you start getting too afraid of losing things, you start becoming really defensive. Mm. You're like, oh, I gotta protect what I have. I gotta. Uh, make all these moves to ensure that the status quo stays quo. 
and I think that's absolutely death of progress and it's death of, uh, of improvement because now you're just sort of guarding what you have. You're not willing to take risks. You're not willing to say things like they are because like, oh, what if I offended people or what if they didn't want to use my stuff afterwards or hmm. what if I, I put something new in rails and people don't like it and, and then they don't want to use it anymore i mean if you walk around with those fears in your head all the time you're you're going to be miserable hmm. so if you did have to step away from 37 signals and someone were basically going to force you to start a different kind of business what would you work on um i don't know i don't know what the business domain would be i mean for sure, I love programming, so uh, it'd probably be something where I could apply my my programming skills. And I also do love quote unquote real businesses, and and I define those as uh, uh, asking customers for money. So it'd mm-hmm. probably be in that sphere too, not in like uh, some social whatever ad crumb supported site. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I don't I don't know. I, I think at thirty seven signals, we try to just explore good ideas when we have them so we experiment with a lot of different sort of apps and styles and so forth and any of those could form the foundation of a new business if say i couldn't do 37 signals or base camp anymore hmm. so you guys have, have mentioned on the blog that there there's a new 37 signals product coming out any chance you can give us a hint of what that might be um it's very simple i think that uh, what i like that's shocking i was expecting to say it's extremely complicated well, our uh, comparison of simple is, is the rest of our product suite. So when I say mm. simple, I mean much simpler than the products we already have mm, not compared to some global standards. So in many ways, it, it's, it's much, much simpler. Um, and in, in some ways, both more modest than in its ambition and in other ways, also way more ambitious than, uh, than the products we already have. But uh, I think it's much fun. Uh, people used to see it when it comes out. I mean, it's certainly not going to, and, and none of our products have ever had that sort of like, oh my God, like, what is this? Mm. Like, I've never seen this before in my life. We tend to take um, existing concepts, remix them together, and just make the experience much better than it was before. Mm. Um, so this is not, like, we're not a company of rocket scientists trying to invent the new deep dish something something um we're much more focused on just making everyday things better uh and and solving small problems uh most people have lots of small problems not a whole lot of huge problems but uh that's something i I, i'm extremely content uh with even the notion of sort of the caricature of 37 sequels is that all you do is just re-implement to-do lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, there's a sort of an, an aspect of that that's true uh, and that I'm extremely okay with. Um, lots of stuff in this world runs off communication around tasks and tracking tasks. Like if that's the space that I'm in, that's fine. That's okay. It doesn't need to be more for me to feel satisfied with... Uh, with the work that I'm doing. Hmm. I want to go a, a little bit technical for a second. Do you guys do code reviews at 37 signals? To some extent. Um, usually when we have something particularly gnarly or high risk, for example, if we're changing the billing system in some ways that uh, 
could affect real monies or uh, another aspect of maybe permissions of privacy or something where the consequences of being wrong are dire. Mm-hmm. On things that are not high stakes, we tend not to. Mm. And then just accept the fact that bugs from time to time will slip through and that's okay. We'll deal with them and we'll fix them. So I wouldn't say that we're a code review heavy organization. What I tend to do, though, is I tend to read through our entire code bases at fairly regular intervals. Like I must have read through the new version of Basecamp dozens of times during the whole build process where I simply load up the entire project in TextMate. And then I just go through file by file, template by template, class by class, and read through all of it and like, oh, is this good? Is this bad? And I do that a lot just for inspiration in terms of what would I extract from here? What would I put into Rails? Mm. What are some of the commonalities or the new practices or patterns that we're coming up with to solve this new class of problems? And, and can I fit that into uh, Rails? So for me, that's probably the main part of code review that I'm doing. But it's not a formalized process that we have. Huh. When when you see things that you'd like to change that you want to improve, is there is there a theme among those things? Do you have like a certain aesthetic that you're shooting for, or certain principles that you adhere to very frequently? Yeah, I try to spot patterns. So I try to spot things that we're already doing. Is there a commonality here? Like, are we doing the same thing in three or four different controllers? Can I abstract that? Can I make it shorter? To me, it's a lot about length. Not in a code golf kind of way. Oh, how much shit can I cram into one line of code? Mm-hmm. But how can I make this clearer? And the consequence of clearer is usually shorter. Um, so when I see like the same three or four lines of code just repeated over and over again with no meaningful variation, I'm like, oh, here we got a candidate for extraction here. Let's uh, let's have a closer look and see if we can't pull it back such that it becomes just part of the stuff that we built on top of. And then we can start worrying about other things because I think the greatest philosophical cause that Rails have championed has been uh, conventional configuration. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly trying to spot and extract new conventions because I find that once I've identified a new convention, put it into Rails or somewhere else where I can reuse it, I can stop thinking about it. And then it's kind of like that improvement thing again, right? Mm. So it's kind of, so it just, it shaves a 10th off my lap time Mm. to identify this one new convention and put it in. But hey, get enough tenths and and it adds up and and you're a couple of seconds ahead by the end of the year. And that's hugely satisfying to me, especially at this point in the game, I'd say, because we've already invested tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands Hell, I don't even know, maybe even more than hundreds of thousands of hours into the Rails code base, right? Mm. It's a very highly refined piece of software. So if you're able to spot new things in the way we build things with such a highly reviewed, highly tuned piece of machinery, that's extremely gratifying, right? As we were talking about, it's quite easy to to go from the initial phase of 0% to 80%, like the main breakthrough there is the new idea, the new concept, like conventional configuration. Let's not write configuration files. Boom, tons of shit falls out of that, right? Now that we've been at it for a decade, as we talked about, it's much harder, much more effort goes into shaving 
tiny improvements out of it, but it also makes them so much sweeter because they, in some way, are a rarer find. Mm. Like coming up with a with a big breakthrough in in simplicity feels really good because it's just harder. So we sort of we constantly increase the difficulty level that that we have upon us when we try to come up with uh, with improvements to Rails and how we do things. So. Uh, like the impact of each individual change is pop- is probably going down, but it's it's more than compensated for in in terms of difficulty level. If you compare those two things and just say, is it still interesting? Is it still a challenge for me to work on Rails? And I'd say it's more of a challenge than ever. Mm. Do you provide a lot of uh, technical uh, leadership and guidance to the other thirty seven signals programmers, or do you kind of just let them run loose in the code bases? Everybody runs loose by default. Absolutely. There's no sort of, oh, you have to check with me first mm-hmm. before whatever. I, I prefer the retroactive approach. Like I assume that all the programs we have at 37 Signals are going to write great code that I agree with the vast majority of the time. So when I do my occasional reviews, either when it's re- going through an entire code base or it's reviewing just a single feature, it's it's much more time effective for me just to go and say, hey, this thing you already wrote, I have some ideas on how to improve it, rather than try to upfront hand down stone tablets of design for, for people to implement. Like that usually doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd say that a lot of the advice that I try to expense internally and and with the rails core team and rails contributors are at a pretty high level and and it's i try to be subtle with it like hey here's like a dsl i really like like this would be a cool way to to implement this do you want to have a look at that and then you have to respect that whoever actually ends up doing the work they will get more fine-grained feedback than you will ever get from just sitting in your rocking chair and coming up with swell architectural plans so you you certainly have to respect that as well which is why i i try not to be too forceful and like oh this is the way it has to be done except for the cases where i feel exceptionally clear-minded because i've felt the pain of the problem myself um to be able to uh formulate exactly what I, I think is a good solution here. And then in that case as well, the, the actual implementation, I mean, awful, will differ. It, it's certainly no secret that when it comes to Rails, for example, I care far more about the using feel of Rails, the, uh, the APIs and the DSLs, how they look, how they feel to use, than I care about the backend implementation. Mm. Which is great because there are lots of other people in the Rails community who care a lot about optimizing things that already are uh, in terms of the back end, right? So um, we've had uh, multiple parts of like Active Record or the router, so forth, rewritten from scratch, keeping the exact same DSL, but introducing other aspects, like maybe it uses less memory, maybe it's better well factored behind the scenes maybe it's faster or any of these other properties you could care about and it's like hey that's that's wonderful like knock yourself out like these are not uh competing goals we we can work on the things that we feel we're good at or we're interested in at the same time and like that's that's the prospering part of 
working with other programmers, whether it's within a company or it's working on open source. It, it's interesting to hear you say that. And it sounds almost like you're you're the the customer stakeholder of Rails. Like you care what it's like to use it, and as an end user, and the back end is sort of like not as important to you. Absolutely, that's absolutely true. And the reason I care is because I use Rails all the time. Like I am the end user. I'm not envisioning what an end user would possibly be. Mm-hmm. I'm designing for myself. I'm designing for. Like, I have to use this goddamn framework. Every day, or if not every day, certainly every week. So I care deeply about having a, a good time doing so. Uh, because the only thing that, like, I don't have to program anymore. Like, if I didn't find it fun to program anymore, I could not program. And I would not go hungry to bed, right? Mm. So uh, sort of at some point, you just realize, like, I'm not doing this for, for, for work just I'm doing it because I care about it and I want to have a good experience doing it. So I have to really be protective about that user experience because I have to subject myself to it all the time. Uh, and, and I want to keep working on Rails for the next 10 years to 20 years or however long Rails stays relevant. Um, and, and the only way to do that is to keep myself interested. And the only way to keep myself interested is work with tools that I admire and appreciate and, and really find well-designed. So, so you and Matt's are both optimizing for developer happiness. Absolutely. And you're, you're optimizing for your own. Yes. This is, I mean, this is not a charity case. <laughs> I, I, I'm not working on Rails for other people. Like, that's a very, very nice side effect. I'm, I am truly happy that other people are also finding value in Rails and, and are able to, to build great apps on it and so forth. But when I sit down to design a new feature, it, I, that's just not who I care about. I care about making something that's great for me because that's the only way I know how to make something that's great, period. Hmm. So which of your accomplishments are you most proud of? Um, I don't know. I think the, the good thing is that you don't have to choose. And I think that that's part of what I try to do when I basically sit down and design my lifestyle. Like I often sit down and think about like at this point I can do pretty much whatever the fuck I want. Like I could quit and I could be fine. I don't have to work on programming. I don't have to do a lot of things uh, if I don't want to do them. So what's the optimal composition of my lifestyle um, in terms of things I want to spend time on? And for me, I found that, that a good balance of, uh, Different tracks is what really makes for a good fit for me. So I really like running 37 Signals as a business in terms of growing a business and, and creating uh, passionate customers and, and helping people with the, with the tools that we provide. I, I love programming. I love uh, making Rails, making things with Rails. So, so that's really important to me. Um, I, I fell in love with racing. So I... I spend a lot of time on that. I, I travel for it. I, I prepare for it. I practice for it. Um, I spend a lot of time with photography. Um, I just um, uh, had a son with my wife uh, about a month ago. That's obviously really important. So I'm trying to just see, like, uh, there are all these influences. There are all these things that I care about. Um, like, there's going to be a good sort of pie chart here where it says, like, all right, I want to spend... 10% on racing, X% on this, X% on that. And 
if that pie chart for whatever reason is not making me happy, then let's alter the ratios. But I think it's the composition that, that is truly gratifying rather than just taking one slice of it and saying, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. Mm. Because it, it's not. And it doesn't really go in isolation. So you could say, oh, well, it's, it's great to have worked on Rails for a decade and um, been a part of, of something that, that thousands of programmers work with every day. Like, yep, that, that's satisfying. But if that, was, if that was the only track, if that was all I had worked on, if I just worked on, in, on Rails in isolation, it wouldn't have been great. Like if I had not used Rails to, to build Basecamp and, and, and power all of 37 signals, Rails in isolation is not great. By the same token, if, if I had just built Basecamp and I hadn't enjoyed the journey, if I hated myself every day punching out PHP or Java doing so, like I couldn't look at that accomplishment and feel like, oh, that's a great accomplishment. Hmm. Uh, the same thing with with any of the things like racing, for example. It, it's the success of, of 37 Signals that's allowed me to uh, enjoy this hobby. So again, it, it's that's not a it's not a thing in isolation. So um, I try not to look at these as individual separate bits and evaluate them on just their own merit because they really are all interconnected. And what I'm proud of is the is the whole pie. Mm. So, so one last kind of related question: uh, What would you like your legacy to be? Um, progress, improvement, like uh, that. I help make the world a little bit better in in some way that mattered to some people, like whether that's customers of Basecamp who feel like they have more control over their company and the projects that they run, whether it's the employees of 37 Signals who got to work at a, at a great place, uh, whether it's the users of Rails that feel like, wow, this is much better than what I used before. It inspired me to learn more about programming. Um, those are really the kinds of things that, that to me matter. Like making a dent in the universe is, is pretty important. I think that it's just a driving factor for, for a lot of people that what we want to do is, is just leave a mark. Because if, if you don't leave a mark, uh, what were you doing here? That doesn't mean that that mark has to be like rails, like it has to impact thousands and thousands of people, but you have to leave a mark on something, on somebody somewhere. Hmm. Um, Sounds good. So I, I, uh, before we go, I know you said that, you know, you make, you make rails for you and it's because you want, some, you, you want to have something that you like working with. But uh, on behalf of a lot of us here, it's let us have a really cool company and some really interesting careers. And so, so thanks for making it. We appreciate it. Well, thanks. It's, it's always great to hear. I mean, it, when, when I say I make it for me, it doesn't mean I don't care. <laughs> it is, it's a design technique. It's a design technique to, to think uh, about your own value system and, uh, and uh, taste first instead of trying to guess what other people might want somewhere some, someday. Got but it. then once it's made, you can totally appreciate, oh, this is super cool that, uh, that I'm not a bu- 
beautiful, unique snowflake in terms of what I like and what I don't like. There are lots of other people who like the same style of APIs that I do, and it's gratifying to see that happen. Absolutely. Cool. Sounds good. Um, well, I think that wraps things up. Uh, David, thanks very much for uh, chatting with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 28. Uh, today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quenthal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.